Join me in welcoming this evening's guest moderator, editor Michelle Fry, and tonight's guest author, Christopher Paolini. Hi, everybody. Hi. We're happy you're here. Get to eavesdrop on our conversation. Um, Christopher, are you ready to start? If you are. I am. No, we were talking earlier that maybe it would be better if we just sit here and don't say anything for about half an hour. Or, you know, just toss a ball back and forth, do some sort of piece of performance art. But then uh, we decided you guys would probably kill us if we did that, so. <laughs> we'll move on to actually talking. So the story of how you came to be a published author at such a young age is really quite extraordinary. You started thinking of the story of Aragon when you were 15, became a New York Times bestselling author at 19, and are now finishing up at 27. Can you talk a little bit about that journey? How long have we got? <laughs> um, well, it's been a really amazing experience from start to finish. It's not something I ever thought would happen, uh, any of it. Uh, when I started Aragon, it was something I was writing for my own enjoyment, and I thought that at the most, maybe just my parents would read the book. Maybe my sister, if I was lucky. Um, so then to then have Aragon to eventually to be published by Random House, and then of course all the books after that, uh, and then to get out and travel and do events like this and get to meet readers and fans and, and people all around the world, it's been an amazing experience, and it's certainly changed my life for the better and in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, instead of writing as a hobby now, uh, now I get to write as a job, and uh, I get to um, tell the stories that I love, and make a, you know, I'm able to make a living at it. So it's been an amazing experience. And again, I'm very, very grateful that uh, I've been able to do this. When did you know that you wanted to be a writer, or did it just happen? Oh, I never wanted to be a writer. Uh, no, no. Uh, I wanted to do what my characters are doing. I wanted to be fighting monsters and riding dragons and doing all that stuff. You know, the cool stuff. Um, and then actually, when I started Aragon, I didn't want to write Aragon. I wanted to make a movie out of Aragon. Uh, but of course, I couldn't do that at the time. So I said, well, maybe I can, you know, tell the story with words. And that's pretty cheap. You know, I've got some pens. I got some paper. So I wrote the first 60 pages longhand and got started like that. Uh, after, after I was about halfway through the book, though, I started realizing how much I loved stories. And I really started thinking about how much I enjoyed reading and, and how much books had meant to me. And that was the point when I started thinking, you know, maybe I really do want to become a writer. But the thing is, is I never actually believed I was a writer until, until my third book. Because the first book, well, because the first book, you know, I thought, okay, it's only one book, you know, maybe it was a fluke. I can't, you know, maybe I can't do it again. And then the second book was, all right, all right, now I can do it two times, but maybe I can't do it a third time. And so it really wasn't until my third book, Brissinger, came out that I, I really believed in my bones that, okay, maybe I really am a writer at this point. I don't think I ever knew that. <laughs> Let me ask you a question about place because setting is so big in the series, in the inheritance cycle. We all here, most of us I think are New Yorkers, right? And that informs how we live and think and do. How did growing up in Montana inform the inheritance cycle? Well, probably in a couple of ways. Uh, one, it's, it, you know, every time I look out my window of the house uh, where I'm working and where also I grew up, I get to see the mountains and the landscape and the light going across the foothills and that's very inspiring if you're writing epic fantasy. Um, you know, I might have written fantasy if I grew up in New York City, but I 
pr- it probably would have been a different sort of fantasy. Post-apocalyptic. Post-apocalyptic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, um, you know, there are just some things that you can't imagine out of your, just out of your mind. You have to experience things sometimes to, to learn all the little details. And uh, so being able to go out and hike in the mountains and interact with the animals, all of that was a lot of, um, a lot of inspiration for me. Also, uh, again, aside from the landscape, again, the animals. You know, I grew up with dogs and cats and right on the Yellowstone River, and I got to see uh, uh, bald eagles and uh, badgers and bears and moose and elk and deer and rattlesnakes and all these animals and more right in the area. And that really helped when it came time to write about dragons and uh, things like that. Uh, I remember, you remember in the first book when uh, I have a scene in the first book. time, yeah. When, when uh, Safira, the dragon, Safira is talking about eating the deer. Yes. And we had a discussion about that because that bothered you, remember? No, I don't remember that. <laughs> oh, I... <laughs> but refresh my memory. Well, because it bothered you because, you know, you didn't grow up with a dog or have a dog growing up, right? That's true. And you kind, you kind of felt that it was a little bloodthirsty. I remembered that comment. <laughs> and, and it bothered you. And, and I remember from my point of view... You know, I had to watch my dear beloved dog, Annie, that I grew up with, chewing on live baby mice. Mm. And, you know, after, after seeing that, then you kind of, uh, the whole nature red in tooth and claw it begins to make sense. So, but that all, all funneled into the, the world of the story. Well, it's interesting you talk about animals, because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was how you were inspired by certain real-world animals and how some of the animals in your books, like the creatures native to the Buer Mountains, may have been inspired and how you came up with them. <laughs> well, I think all the dragons are basically a mixture of the dogs and the cats that I grew up. I think dragons and cats are really similar for some reason. Um, and of course, of course, uh, in, in the Buer Mountains, there are, where the dwarves live, there are some giant, uh, giant boars, which I call the Nagra. And uh, I got to see some some pigs that were far ranch ranchers had certain pigs around where I lived, and that definitely played into what I was writing about. So basically, everything I came into contact as a kid ended up in the story in one way or another, including the giant emu that escaped from a local farm and was running around our area when I was growing up. So there was an emu in Montana, and I'll tell you, it's really weird when you see a bird that's taller than you, especially when you're like, when you're like five and here's this giant six-foot-tall bird almost. And uh, I think that probably went to some of my descriptions of the dragons. Let me ask you another question in terms of your childhood. Were there any authors in particular that inspired your work? Oh, lots. Um, you know, I've read tons of fantasy growing up, so I was reading uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, Wizard of Earthsea, uh, science fiction, Ender's Game, Dune, uh, Lord of the Rings, of course, uh, a lot of fantasy by Tad Williams, uh, let's see, Andre Norton's sci-fi, uh, the Moss Flower series by Brian Jakes, uh, lots and lots and lots of authors, and all of that, you know, because I loved those stories, all of that fed into what I wanted to write, and... And Aragon was really my attempt to be, um, my attempt to pay tribute to all the stories that had given me so much enjoyment when I was growing up. So I have a question for you guys. Do you guys have a favorite character in the book? 
Murtag. <laughs> what about you? Same as well. <laughs> well, you'll you'll. Uh, I I can't spoil the fourth book for you. I mean, I could. But then I would have to lock all of you up in my basement for the next couple of months. And I'm sure you're all lovely people, but I don't think my mom would enjoy having to cook for all of you. But I can tell you that in the fourth book, you're going to see a lot more of Murtag, right? Yes. And you guys are going to be very happy. (laughs) I have a question for you, though. Do you have a favorite character? Oh. Oh, that's a horrible question. I know. Um... I mean, all my characters are sort of favorites in one way or another, but ultimately, probably Safira. I mean, if I had to pick one favorite character, it'd be Safira. Uh, but I do have a great fondness for uh, Murtag and Rorn and Arya and Nasawada and, and even Aragon a little bit. <laughs> he's a little bit of a... Uh, he definitely uh, whines a little bit sometimes, but he's a good character. And... Um, in some ways, he's very similar to me, so maybe I shouldn't badmouth him too much. Um, but no, I, I'd enjoy all the characters. And talking of Sephira, when did you first decide you wanted to write a piece of the book from her, the books from her point of view, and how did you come up with that very unique way of seeing the world through her perspective and her point of view? Well, I was... In each of the books, I've tried to challenge myself technically or creatively in at least one way. It doesn't always work um, what I'm trying, but I do try to push myself a little bit. So in the second book, I had some point of view from uh, Nasuata and Roran as well. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to do something with Safira? But the problem is, is she and Aragon are always together for the most part. So when they're together, I always write from Aragon's point of view because he's the main character. And finally, in Brissinger, in the third book, I had the chance to uh, split Aragon and Sephira up for a little while. And so I thought, okay, oh, oh, now I can write with Sephira. And the way I sort of came up with her voice is, one, I'd done, I've done, obviously, a lot of dialogue with her, so I had a certain tone in mind. But then also, I kept thinking about how um, dragons in my world don't have their own language, because they communicate telepathically. So they just communicate with language, with images and feelings and sensations. And if they use language like Sephira does, it's, uh, it's something they learn later. It's not native to them. And so in Sephira's use of language, I tried to go back to that sense of every time she thinks of something, she's referencing all the images and emotions and thoughts that she feels are most important about that object or person or whatever. Um, it's, it's a little easy to get carried away with, though, because I can end up saying something like, um, uh, you know, it'd be all hyphenated, and it'd be, you know, the mountain where I once caught the deer that kicked me in the leg, and it really hurt for three days, you know, and it takes up half a paragraph, just the one name or reference. But it is fun to write. When you're thinking about or writing about the bad guys in the story or the people who are a little bit more complicated, not necessarily all on the side of good. Do you have to find something that you like about those characters to write about them? You know, I'm afraid about what this is going to reveal about me, but I have no trouble writing the bad guys. (laughs) It's kind of fun. Um, Because, you know, the bad guys are fun because they get to do whatever they want to do. You know, the good guys are always trying to do the right thing, whereas the bad guys, you know, if the bad guy wants to kill someone, he kills someone. He doesn't worry about it. He doesn't, you know, anguish over it. He just kills the person. Um, 
I think, although, what, what I do find difficult with, with the villains, so to speak, or the more complicated characters, is having to think about difficult or unpleasant things for, you know, for a, an extended period. You know, if I'm writing a chapter that takes me a week to write and it's all battles or really intense, serious stuff, then it gets to me as the author. I start feeling, you know, intense and serious and sometimes a little depressed. So what I'm writing on always affects my own mood and vice versa. Uh, and, and in the case of the villains, sometimes that can have a negative effect on me as well. But they are fun to write. The villains are fun to write. And fun to read. And fun to read, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Have you done a lot of research about the mythology of dragons in building this world? I read a lot of books with, with dragons when growing up, you know, so Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern and uh, Jane Yolen's Pit Dragon Trilogy, which I highly recommend if you haven't read it, um, and, and many others, Beowulf and stuff like that. But I never did really research research because I figured that, you know, dragons are the, the, the dragons in my book are dragons. There is no other version. They are the way dragons are supposed to be. Everyone else got it wrong. <laughs> Uh, and that's one of the reasons to write a book, is so that you can tell the story the way you want it to be and not the way everyone else has done it. Um, so no, no, no real research. Uh, definitely some influences, but no real research. What about the languages that you've created in the books? You've done some research there. Oh, yeah, that, that <laughs> I have. Because um, the ancient language was based pretty much on uh, Old Norse, which I thought gave it a nice sound and feel. And it was just sort of... a learning experience for me on how to create an imaginary language. But then I had a lot of fun with the dwarf language. Well, and with the ancient language, I did do a lot of research into word origins and Old Norse and uh, finding, finding the words that I liked for them, like Brissinger, which is the first word that I ever came up with. And that's an Old Norse, a rare Old Norse word for fire. Uh, but then with the dwarf language, that was just from scratch. And I had a lot of fun with that. The dwarf language is my favorite. Uh, and I've always said that if I could go into Aragon's world and live there, I'd go write a dwarf opera or something, you know? It just has a, such a great sound. In fact, um, do any of you have a copy of Eldest with you? Here, here, let me borrow this from you for a second. Uh, I will give it back. I know how it ends, so... Uh, let's see if I can find this here. Looking in the language. Okay, so an example of the ancient language, of the elf language, it would say, now I am not an elf. I have a horrible, horrible accent in elvish. Uh, but an example of the ancient language would sound something like this. Um, which is one of the blessings that the elves use in the book. But now, here, here's a chunk of Dwarvish. So this is, again, this is from the second book, Eldest. Form Vrath Karach. Form Jürgen Karmeter. Nos etta Goroth Bastarnag. Dur incesti rak kithen. Yok is warav as barzulagur. Dur durgrimst as schwelden rak anawin. Mog torak Jürgen Vren. Wow, you've got a kick-ass Dwarvish accent, <laughs> I'd that say. That I do. <laughs> The only problem is, is if you speak Dwarvish for too long, you go hoarse. <laughs> it explains a lot about the dwarves. <laughs> it does, it does. And you should hear their love poems. They're, they're um, raucous. Well, speaking of languages, kind of 
brings me to names. I don't know. Does anyone here know about the very first draft of Aragon, <laughs> what Aragon's name was? That's right, Kevin, everybody, was the, the name of Aragon in the very first draft. How, first of all, how did you come up with Kevin? What made you change it to Aragon? And what, what is in a name? I like Kevin. Kevin's a good name. <laughs> I mean, it's a horrible name for the book, but it's a good name. Uh, I don't know. I was, it was, I, I can't remember why I chose it, honestly. It was, um, might have been, I'd seen it in another book, or I knew a kid who had the name. Um, I, I can't remember. But yeah, I wrote the whole manuscript with Kevin, running around with Safira and fighting monsters and stuff. And then and when I was working on the second draft, I realized that it was a really out-of-place name for the world. So I kept thinking, you know, what can I name it? What can I name it? What can I name it? And eventually I thought about, tra uh, I was fiddling around with the word dragon, and I changed the, the word, the first letter um, to E from D, and that became Aragon. And I really like the sound of it, that it, not only is it a good sound, but it also has the meaning of a, you know, an era gone by, an era past. And I thought that was a nice touch for a big epic fantasy like this. Uh, but I put a lot of thought into my names overall. Um, names are very difficult for me sometimes, very easy other times, but some of my names are word plays, uh, like Sephira is a play on Sapphire, Aragon's a play on Dragon. Um, I have a village named Yazuak, which is an anagram for the Yakuza, the Japanese Mafia. There are, you would be surprised about the sources of a lot of the names in the, in the series, but, um, but then a lot of them are also invented according to the rules of the, the various languages. Um, like one of my favorite names in the entire series is a place name, and it appeared in uh, the second, in, in Eldest, I believe. And it's just a name for a little spur of rock that sticks off the end of the, the Spine Mountains. And in the elves call it Edur Karthungave. And for some reason, just the way it feels in my mouth, I just love that. Edur Karthungave. Um, but it only appears like twice in the book, so twice in the series, that is. You have had the extraordinary opportunity to travel the world talking about Aragon. Do you have some favorite memories? Oh, boy. Um... Well, I enjoyed visiting Edinburgh, Scotland. That was really neat. I've lived in Alaska twice, so being up in Scotland was kind of like home for me. Uh, home with haggis, though. And uh, getting to visit various places in Europe and, and here in the States as well, that's always been a treat. Um, I've gotten to meet some great people, lots of fans, lots of um, great booksellers. Uh, when I was in Chicago on my last book tour, I had a woman come through this book signing. It was pretty late. It was almost 11, I think. And she, she came through the line, and she was carrying a sugar glider. Now, do, you, do any of you guys not know what a sugar glider is? Okay. A sugar glider is, it's kind of like a flying squirrel, but it's, it's a marsupial. And it's really, really cute. So she came through the line, and it's, it was sort of up on one of her arms. And they're about, oh, six or eight inches long. And I said, do you mind if I pet your, your pet? Sugar glider. <laughs> pet your sugar glider. I didn't want to say that, though. <laughs> do you mind that if I pet your awful. sugar glider? <laughs> um, and she said, sure, sure, sure. It doesn't bite. So I reach out, and I start petting this, this nice little marsupial. And it has hands, kind of like a raccoon. And it wraps them around my finger very politely. 
and just starts gnawing on my finger. And because, you know, my hand was kind of sweaty from signing books and stuff. And so I'm sitting there, and there's blood running down my hand. And I'm looking at the woman, trying to keep a smile on my face and saying, would you please stop your sugar glider from not trying to eat me? Um, but I, I, I really enjoy the fact that it, I mean, I didn't gain diseases or anything from it, fortunately. Uh, but I really enjoy that it happened after the fact, because I now get to say that I got gnawed on by a marsupial. And I don't think there are too many it. authors that get to say that. That's true. <laughs> You sure write a lot, as I know firsthand, but what kinds of things do you like to do when you're taking a break from writing? Um, give, give, um, give talks in Apple stores, that's one of them. Uh, I, do, I do a lot of physical activity when I'm not writing because I sit so much, so I, I hike a lot, I lift weights, uh, do some yoga, stuff like that. Uh, I do a lot of uh, drawing and art as well. Uh, I did all of the interior art in, in the books and uh, I've, I'm always doing drawings and stuff like that. Uh, I also enjoy woodworking and metalworking. In fact, one of the things I'm doing as soon as um, I'm finished with promoting and putting last touches on book four is I'm making myself, or finishing actually, uh, the male hauberk that I've been working on for ages. So I, everyone needs a sword and everyone needs at least one suit of male armor, you know? Um, so I'm going to be finishing that, and I do a lot of, I've made my own knives and swords as well, uh, so I'd like to get back and do a bit more of that as well. Uh, unfortunately, every time I do something like that, I tend to get another couple scars on my hand, so I, I, I enjoy it, but uh, I tend to draw blood each time, so it's a bit of a trade-off. One concept that I love in the books is the concept of your true name. How did you come up with that idea? Well, it's a very old concept that, that names have power. I mean, all the old mythology, all the old folk tales, names have power. If you know someone's name, or if you know their secret name, you can control that person or that dragon. And, of course, there's the old notion also that language itself is magic. In fact, the old word for magic, uh, there, or there's an or more obscure word for magic, which I even used in, in my books, which is grammary. And grammary is related to the word for grammar which I, just tickles the authorial part of my brain. So when I started writing Aragon, I was naturally drawn toward that idea. And of course, uh, also like Ursula Le Guin in the Wizard of Earthsea series, she used true names as well. Uh, and I use mine a little bit differently than hers, but that was another, definitely another source of inspiration for that. I have a few favorite characters in the books, but one of my favorites you know is Angela. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about her? Well, for those of you who don't know, uh, Angela the Herbalist in the books was based on my sister, Angela. And fortunately, she has a very good sense of humor about it, or else I wouldn't be sitting here right now. But she's, in, in real life, my sister is basically exactly like the character. Um, she's five foot tall, and she has curly brown hair, and she's incredibly smart. And if you ask her the Latin name of any plant where we live, she can tell you. And she'll also, and she may or may not tell you if it'll kill you if you eat you, you know, if you eat it, depending on how she's feeling. But um, she's uh, been a great inspiration for the character and for um, a lot of the story points in, this, in, the, in the book. And in fact, if she's a character you enjoy, I can tell you that she kind of took over a couple of scenes in the fourth book. So she has some really cool stuff in there. But, um, I, and the funny thing is, her character was only supposed to be a joke. I, I put her in in the second draft of Aragon. 
and it was just I was just poking fun at my sister, and then she ended up becoming basically the most interesting character in the series, or one of the most interesting characters of the characters of the series. Um, so I guess that should teach brothers everywhere not to make fun of their sisters. <laughs> Someone's <laughs> clapping here, yeah. Um, but she's 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 fun, and I'm I, she's always told me that if she gets a if she writes a book of her own, she'll put me into the book as a character as well. So I'm rather dreading the day. Has she told you any more than that? <laughs> I think she said she was going to put me in as an arms dealer. <laughs> Somehow that makes sense. <laughs> what, what you guys don't know is that I have a rather ridiculously massive collection of swords and knives at home. So, among other weapons. You do. <laughs> <laughs> what advice do you have for aspiring writers? Um, well, I would say that if you want to you know, write and publish your own work. Uh, the main thing, I think, is to read, 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 and read, keep reading. Uh, and it could be, you know, it doesn't matter really what you're reading as long as you are reading and you're enjoying it and you're, and, and you're paying attention to what you're reading and trying to learn from it. I would also say um, learn everything you can about the English language or whatever language you're writing in because language is the tool of the trade. And the more you know about it, the better you're going to be able to tell the story that you want to tell. And, and not, also don't get too carried away with trying to follow the rules. You should definitely understand the rules and don't, don't break them unless you understand why you're breaking them, but don't follow them slavishly either, whatever the rules might be. Uh, and then also find someone in your life, uh, you know, friend, parent, sibling, spouse, uh, teacher, uh, whomever, who knows something about reading and writing, someone who's a good reader and who can help edit your work and tell you where you've gone wrong, where you've made a mistake, and how you can get better. Because that's how you learn how to write. That's how you, I mean, unless you're someone like, um, you know, Dickens or, you know, unless, you're, unless you are a genius out of, right from the gate, and even Dickens had to learn how to write, it really helps to, to have someone edit your work and, and then to learn from it. And it is very hard to take that criticism but that is where the, the, that's where you get the most benefit. Uh, and then lastly, don't give up. It's really, really, really easy to get discouraged. And there's lots of people in this world who are going to tell you that you can't do this. In fact, you may tell yourself that you can't do this. But if you are serious about it and if stories really mean that much to you, then you have to just say, you know what? I'm not going to stop. It may take me two years, it may take me three years, it may take me five years, it may take me ten years, but I'm not going to give up. And I can guarantee you, if you spend four years working on one thing, and one thing only, and you make a serious effort to learn everything you can about what you're working on, you will get better. If you don't, you're probably doing the wrong thing. But if you really make that effort, you will get better, and you will... Um, you will improve your odds tremendously of getting published. More people are getting published now than at any other time in history. This is the easiest time to get published in the, in, in, in the history of the world. So your odds are good. Uh, that said, it's not necessarily going to be an easy path. But um, yeah, ultimately, if you want to tell stories, I, I highly, highly encourage you to do it if it's something you love. And I wish you all the best of luck. Long answer to the short question. <laughs> Thank you, a good one. So, book four, the yes. final book in the cycle, is coming out on November 8th. Yeah. Inheritance. Yes. 
in a moment you're gonna I'm, read that's so i'm told so yes. i'm told <laughs> in a moment you're gonna read an excerpt from it before you do is there anything that you want to share about the book um well i'm a little nervous to be reading the excerpt because this is the first time there, there's already been an excerpt released from um book four I'm not used to calling it inheritance because we've been we've been concealing the title for so long that I, I, I just call it book four. Me you know? too. I it's still book call four. it book four. <laughs> um, but I am a little nervous. This is the first time I've ever ever read from book four, and you know, ultimately, I hope that when you guys read it, that you're going to enjoy it and that you're going to feel that it's an appropriate uh, conclusion for the characters and the world and the story. Uh, I may revisit this world. But for the time being, this is the end of the series. And it was certainly a, a, a big step for me personally, creatively, uh, for, for many reasons. It was hard to finish, again, for many reasons. But I, I think it's hopefully the best book in the series. I mean, it's so much changes for the characters in this book. Um, there's a lot of fun stuff that happens, a lot of intense stuff, and... I'm not sure what else to say. What else to say about this book, Michelle? I mean, well, I I can tell you guys it's phenomenal. It is the best <laughs> one yet, and you brought me to tears several times um, when working on it. It's really wonderful. Yeah, I killed a couple characters. Sorry, <laughs> and I won't tell you who. Not for now. Not but for now. We should leap into okay. the excerpt, I think. And then we're going to be taking some questions from. And then we'll take questions from you guys after yes. that. Ah, there we go. Okay, so this is um, an excerpt from the very first chapter of the book, and uh, the chapter is called Into the Breach. The sound was stabbing, slicing, shivering, like metal scraping against stone. Aragon's teeth vibrated in sympathy, and he covered his ears with his hands, grimacing as he twisted around, trying to locate the source of the noise. Safira tossed her head, and even through the din, he heard her whine in distress. Aragon swept his gaze over the courtyard twice before he noticed a faint puff of dust rising up the wall of the keep from a foot-wide crack that had appeared beneath the blackened, partially destroyed window where Blodgarm had killed the magician. As the squeal increased in intensity, Aragon risked lifting a hand off one ear to point at the crack. Look, he shouted at Arya, who nodded in acknowledgement. He replaced his hand over his ear. Without warning or preamble, the sound stopped. Aragon waited for a moment, then slowly lowered his hands, for once wishing that his hearing was not quite so sensitive. Just as he did, the crack jerked open wider, spreading until it was several feet across, and it raced down the wall of the keep. Like a bolt of lightning, the crack struck and shattered the keystone over the, above the door to the building, showering the floor below with pebble-sized rocks. The whole castle groaned, and from the damaged, damaged window to the broken keystone, the front of the keep began to lean outward. Run! Aragon shouted at the Varden, though the men were already scattering to either side of the courtyard, desperate to get out from under the precarious wall. Aragon took a single step forward, every muscle in his body tense as he searched for a glimpse of Roran somewhere in the throng of warriors. 
At last, Aragon spotted him, trapped behind the last group of men by the doorway, bellowing madly at them, his words lost in the commotion. Then the wall shifted and dropped several inches, leaning even further away from the rest of the building, pelting Roran with rocks, knocking him off balance, and forcing him to stumble backward under the overhang of the doorway. As Roran straightened from a crouch, his eyes met Aragon's, and in his gaze, Aragon saw a flash of fear and helplessness, quickly followed by resignation, as if Roran knew that no matter how fast he ran, he could not possibly reach safety in time. A wry smile touched Roran's lips, and the wall fell. And I'm very sorry that you're going to have to wait until November to find out what happens. <laughs> but you guys are the first people to hear and see yes. that excerpt, so that's really well, exciting. Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> um, so we're gonna try to we're gonna take some questions now, and we're gonna have the microphone brought over to you. So who's first? Yes. Right here in the second row. Hi. Um, before you said uh, that one of the keys to being a good writer is to read a lot, I was just wondering how many books a year would you say you read? How many books a year do I read? It depends how close my deadline is. I'd say that, um, I mean, for example, uh, very recently when um, Up Against the Wall with book four, I'm not reading, I wasn't reading anything. You know, I don't have the time to do that, um, except for maybe uh, checking the news on the internet or something like that. I have tried to read the whole internet, by the way, and I haven't quite managed to do it yet. I keep trying, and I just can't swing it. So one of these days, I will finish reading the internet. But Is anyway, that an avoidance tactic. <laughs> yeah, it might be an avoidance tactic. Uh, as far as just general fiction reading or nonfiction, um, I would say usually a couple of books a week. Um, I mean, when I read a book, I read it in one sitting. Uh, I'm I'm a very fast reader, and I, I find it very hard to put down a book if I'm enjoying it. So uh, currently, I've been working my way through the collected works of the science fiction author uh, Ian M. Banks, who some of you might be familiar with. Um, so, you know, three, four books a week is easy for me. Um, more if I have the time, but uh, much, much less if I don't. Front row here. Hi. Uh, in Before the Battle of the Burning Plains, I believe, uh, Aragon is introduced to a young woman and a man, and it's hinted at that they have their own like quest. It, do, are they ever brought up again? Uh, actually, it was two young. It was two women, a uh, woman and a younger one. It's funny you ask that. It is very funny you ask that. Because we were, I was just looking at a segment in the fourth book where that very thing was addressed. Um, they, that is actually. Those two characters are going to play a, a minor role in the fourth book, which I won't spoil. But that is actually part of another story that someday I would like to tell. Because one of the things that always bothers me is like an author will write a series and they finish the series and then they start writing other books in the, you know, set in the world. And all of a sudden characters, you know, like major villains start coming out of the woodwork that you never heard of before or something like that. So I have very carefully laid the groundwork in this series for at least at least two other books um, 
Yeah, at least two other books. And that's come up in our editing process because there are mm-hmm. pieces there... that I have thought, oh, maybe we can trim this back or it could come out. Right. And we've talked about the fact that those may come into play in the future. Right, a, a few minor elements um, that that if, if it was just a standalone story, we'd probably pull back or dial back. But because it's actually part of a larger tapestry that someday I would like to you know, finish, uh, we've left them in. Good question. Another one in the front row. Hi. Um, in Escape and Evasion from Brissinger, I was we were met to we were introduced to um, I believe his name is Tangar, and um, I was wondering how he was going to influence on the fourth book and if we're going to see a lot more of him. That's a great question. Um, and the reason you know it's a good question is because I'm going to have to tell you that you're going to have to read the fourth book to find out what happens in that regard. Um, that's that's definitely something I think uh, some readers haven't necessarily picked up on, but um, and I'd love to talk to you more about it, but um, again, I'd have to lock you in my basement if I did that. So, sorry. Another one here in the front and center. Um, I know that you're going to be going back to your metal work, but after that, what's the next step? Uh, are you going to continue into epic fantasies or try something new? Um, right, right. What's next? Um... I'm still figuring that out myself a little bit. I think that uh, I've had my fill of large series for the time being. Uh, you know, this one's taken 12-some years of my life, and I, I, I would like a little more variety for the time being. But I have no intention of abandoning sci-fi fantasy at the moment. In fact, I think my next book is probably going to be science fiction. Uh, and then I'll probably go right back to fantasy after that. Um, and then I'll write my epic series of detective novels about this dwarf in Tronchi. No, maybe not. <laughs> I might, though. Um, I don't know. I've got a lot of ideas I'm bouncing around. I have had a lot of stories that I've plotted out basically start to finish over the years. And so now I just have to say which one speaks to me the most at this time and, you know, tackle it. One of the things I'm really looking forward to, and it's going to be a little difficult for me, is I've spent all this time training myself not to use words which are obviously modern. So now I have to actually start learning to, you know, how do I write about cars now? How do I write about skyscrapers? How do I write about, you know, everything we have in the modern world? And I, I think that's going to be fun. Another one in the front. I saw you when the second book came out, and you're totally a different person now. Uh, the shy guy from back in the mountains came out on the second tour when you were out. How are things different now with all the notoriety that goes along with the books? Good question. Uh, I mean, a number of parts of my life have changed because of the attention the series has gotten. Uh, you know, I get a lot of fan mail and make sure that all gets answered. I've gotten very good at speaking in public, I think, or at least decently good. I don't get quite so frightened as I used to. Uh, mainly, uh, my home, li- home life really hasn't changed, so I, that provides a nice balance point for events like this and just, you know, going out and meeting people. Uh, other than that, uh, I think the main thing of the way my life has changed, again, from the very beginning, is just the fact that I get to do this as a living. I get to tell stories as a living. And to me, that's the, that's the greatest gift of all of this. Third row center. Hi, Christopher. Um, first, I'd like to say I really enjoy your books. Thank you. And I named my kitten after Safira. Wait, wait, wait. Say that again. You named... I named my kitten after Safira. I just that's got perfect. her three 
couple weeks ago, and she's only three weeks old. And she's, I'll show you a picture Aww. of her later. Well, you better watch she's out beautiful. that she doesn't start breathing fire. Oh, God, I hope not. She's, she's a pain in the butt now, as it is. But anyway, um, I had one question I hope you might be able to answer for me. I know you won't be able to tell me too much, but in one of the books, I know that Naswata, she wanted to kind of have a prearranged marriage with Oren for, you know, how they usually do that. I was wondering if that would happen in the fourth book, if anything kind of in that direction is going to go with them. And I have another question, if I might. In November, when the other book comes out, will you do another tour in this area? Because I live in Pennsylvania, and it's kind of... Well, I, I think that it's 100% that I'll be doing a signing in New York City, won't it? Oh, that'd be great. That'd uh, be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'll definitely be back in the area. Uh, I, I, I've been, I've done New York City events uh, for ev all of the books. Um, you know, your Nasuata question is, I think that's one of the more interesting questions I've ever gotten asked. And again, I don't want to give away what happens in the, in the fourth book, but I think, I think I can tell you that Nasuata plays a very important and very prominent role in the fourth book. And her choices... Um, both personal and political in the story are going to carry a lot of weight in this book and uh, I think your question is definitely going to be answered to your satisfaction I hope I hope but I haven't I'm not going to ignore that in the slightest that's great thank you you're welcome another one right here in the same spot almost hi um, throughout the throughout your books some of the characters uh, especially the main character develops a more mature and and expands his, his inner character to become more and more better and more mature. And also, side uh, connected with that is also his abilities as well, becomes more developed, more. How would you, def how would you, how did you, do dis did you chart out that, that progress of the inner character vis-a-vis -vis his inner character as well as some of his mm -hmm. uh, abilities being? And also, um, I was hoping that you'd uh, expand your own personal presence on, uh, on, for example, like social media and uh, networking and like Facebook. I used to run some of the things in the early on, but yeah. Now, I, I may, I have not had the time over the course of writing book four to be as involved as I would like with the fan base uh, on the internet, for example. Uh, I have a newsletter that I write rather infrequently, um, and, and that's one of the things now that I'm, I'm beginning to have more time, personal time here. I would really, I really would like to do a lot more of that, and I'm, I'm hoping to be able to do a lot more of that. Uh, I, I really like your question, though, about the personal growth of, Amazing question, yeah. of the characters, because that's really the heart of the story for me. And I think that in, in one way, I had to grow up first before I was able to bring my characters through that journey themselves. And it's, it's mirrored my own journey a little bit as well. And I've also uh, paired it with the fact that Aragon gets a lot more powerful over the story, although, of course, he's still completely outmatched, even in book four, uh, ridiculously outmatched, which, of course, is part of the, you know, part of what you do in a story like this. But to me, what Aragon is doing is he's becoming an adult, and he's learning to take responsibility for his actions, and he's learning how to make choices that he could not have made in the beginning of the story. And that's true for a lot of the characters, but mainly for him. I mean, for example, um, Aragon's cousin, Roran, is mostly grown up when we start seeing him. You know, he's, he already knows who he is and what he wants and how he's going to get it, and he's not going to second-guess himself. You know, if he has to break a few heads, he'll do that. 
Aragon, on the other hand, before he breaks those head, he, heads, he's going to spend five pages worrying if breaking those heads is the right thing to do. But And that's okay, because this is the time in his life when he has to work that out. Later on, once he's older, he won't have to work, worry about these things so much, because he will have gone through this. Uh, to me, that's the interesting part of his story, is, again, how he's figuring out his place in the world. I never consciously really diagrammed everything, but I have spent a lot of time talking with Michelle here and, you know, my sister and my parents and stuff about, but about his journey. Um, you know, when I wrote my, the first draft of Eldest, I accelerated Aragon's journey maturation, if you will, too fast. And I did that because I thought it was going to be only three books and I, I was pacing the story too fast. And that was one case where then I thought, you know what? No, no. I had him grow up too fast in this book. We have to, we have to step back a little bit, let it become a little bit more natural, and, and the story was stronger because of it. And that was definitely a part you helped me with, Michelle. Another one on the fourth row right here. All right. Hi, Christopher. My name is Esther, and I wanted to say that I love your books, and I'm really excited to see what you come up with next. Thank you. And my question is, Nasuada, or Nasuada was recently joined by the Cull, and I was wondering whether or not they were going to play a big role in defeating Galbatorix and the Empire. I find your choice of adjective there amusing, because um, whatever role the Cull play, I think it's big, just because <laughs> you, you, they're hard to ignore. Uh, they definitely play a role in, um, in, in the fourth book. Uh, they, they have an axe to grind, so to speak, with King Galbatorix, and um, they're out for blood. So, no, you'll definitely see them in, in that book, um, and uh, they're, they're, I enjoy writing about them. So uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed in that regard. We have t time for two more questions. One on the front row here. Uh, hey, Chris. I was just wondering, in, uh, in Eldest, uh, you wrote that Nasawada said that uh, once Galbatorix was dead, she intended to resolve the problem that magic users presented. Were you, are you going to expand upon that in the fourth book? And also, I'm wondering if uh, Glader's Eldunari is going to play a bigger role in the book. Uh, you guys are all so smart. <laughs> yes, you are. Uh, it, one, is Glader's Eldunari going to play a role in the fourth book? Yeah, I think that's safe to say. He's not, I mean, he's still alive. Yeah, he's, he's definitely, he's there. Uh, how he plays a role, I won't say, though. Uh, he's, he's not a happy dragon at the moment, so... And you don't like... Un you know, unhappy dragons are, are a thing that you have to be careful of. Uh, your other question, though, I'm... Again, awesome question. Awesome You've question. You definitely picked out one of the interesting story things I'm working with. Will Nasuada... What, she, she's, what will she do about the magic users? Um, that's something that is definitely addressed in the fourth book. Um... Again, how, you'll have to wait to read it to find out. But, um, yeah, no, I, um, that, and it's one of the things I enjoyed writing about and talking about. It, it sort of crops up in a number of places in the fourth book, wouldn't you, Sin? I would, yeah. yeah. It's such an interesting question and something that these characters have to wrestle with. Yeah. Uh, Last question here, fourth row on the opposite side. Yeah. Hi, um, I just wanted to ask about one of the most interesting things for me in the book was the actual politics of the interaction with all three races. Like, how did you come up with the idea of the culls, like, whole, the way they have to hold their heads up as a respect or, or aggressiveness or the dwarves interacting with that whole idea of against the elves always bickering at each other? Like, how did you, how did you make your own touch on that age-old, like, idea between uh, the three races? Um, again, great question. 
I think in the case of the dwarves, it was kind of like dragons. Um, just thinking about the way I always imagined dwarves and, and running with it. And a lot of the way I write about the races, ultimately, it just comes from stereotyping. You think about, okay, what is this race really like? And obviously, the individuals within that race differ uh, quite a bit, just like we do. But you take the main characteristics, and then you really think about how that would affect their, the way they think and the way they, they move and the way their culture develops. Uh, and then the way the races themselves would interact. One of the things I've actually downplayed, I think, in the series is, is given the way we humans actually interact in, the real, in, in this world between you know, the various countries and various groups and stuff, given the, all the tension that already exists just between humans, I think that if you know, dwarves and elves and urgles actually existed, uh, we'd probably be at war with them all the time. Uh, maybe not. Maybe I'm being too cynical. But I do think that there would be a ridiculous amount of tension if there were actually were other sentient races around with humans. And so I, I have tried to play with that a little bit with the Urgles and stuff. Um, but I do think that would definitely be a prominent role. And it, it gives me, it's kind of fun, though, as an as a, as a author, instead of just having you know, everyone getting along together happily, you get to have a little bit of uh, you know, tension and energy to play with in the scenes. And that always adds some spice to the story. So... I think we're uh, about to wrap it up, so and I can sign your stuff. So I just want to say, first of all, how much I've enjoyed doing this, and really uh, some of the best questions. Some of the gotten. best questions, and I look forward to hearing what some of you think about uh, book four once you get to read it in November. And uh, as Aragon himself would say, "Sionar Sverdar Setyahavas," may your swords stay sharp. Thank you.